Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning and welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, evictions are up again to levels not seen since the Great Recession. And how bad will our air quality get as things heat up fast? But first, GOP lawmakers at the state capitol have already seen a few of the bills they've passed met with a swift veto stamp from Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs. But they're also pushing several proposals through the legislature that go around her completely. They are called concurrent resolutions, and they're traditionally enacted when lawmakers want to change anything that's subject to the Voter Protection Act or make changes to the state constitution. They go straight to voters to appear on your 2024 ballot in this case. Our own Ben Giles joins me now to talk more about how Republican lawmakers appear to be preparing a long list for you to decide on this session. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. Okay, so I outlined the ways in which these concurrent resolutions are, are normally used. Do they have to fit those descriptions, though? Well, there's actually a couple of different ways concurrent resolutions are used. You're looking for HCRs and SCRs. That's the label for them in the the House and Senate, respectively. Sometimes they're just used to... as like a literal resolution, mm. as a declaration of um, like the lawmaker, the legislature's opinion on something or other. But but there's 88 total of these that have been introduced so far this year. 51 of them would refer things to the 2024 ballot. That's questions that voters would be asked to vote up or down on in 2024 during the presidential election year. 51. Okay. <laughs> so we've, we've seen some talk about this. There's an op-ed already. Um, is it true that there are more of these this time around? Like our GOP lawmakers really trying to get around Hobbs' veto in, in this way more often than they normally would? Well, I think what we're seeing is the changing landscape because of this divided government. We saw um, one lawmaker, Republican state Uh, Senator J.D. Mesner straight up told the Arizona agenda that, yeah, this is going to be an avenue for Republicans to use if they see their bills continuously vetoed by Democratic Governor Katie Hobbs. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't able to do direct comparisons to years past to see, okay, how many of these HCRs and SCRs haven't been introduced, but 51 would be a lot. Now, I I should say 51 are not going to be on the ballot. A lot of these are uh, from Democratic lawmakers, things like uh, a resolution to repeal the death penalty. That's not going anywhere, and it's certainly not going to be a question put to voters in 2024. Okay, but what issues are we talking about here that could end up on the ballot? So there's some pretty interesting ones. Uh, One thing that we've seen repeatedly in the past and we're continuing to see this year is changes to the citizen initiative process. Mm. That's the other way to get a measure on the ballot. Uh, Citizens or organizations can gather signatures for a proposed law and bypass the legislature entirely. It's, It's a little ironic here because 
Republican lawmakers are trying to bypass the governor. But what Republican lawmakers don't like is being bypassed by the people of Arizona entirely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, on the 2022 ballot, there were three measures, in fact, that aimed to make it more difficult for citizens to approve laws, um, to gather the signatures that they need to, to get laws on the ballot in the first place. I believe two out of three of those were passed. So there's there's another one this year that would change the citizen initiative process to basically require a certain percentage of signatures be collected in every legislative district in the state, in all 30 legislative districts in the state. And the fear there is there are some deep red districts, there are some deep blue districts. One legislative district could essentially have veto power over the citizen initiative process. There's another measure that would also make it harder to vote. There's a a, a a resolution to eliminate early voting and to eliminate no excuse voting by mail, something which 80 to 90 percent of Arizonans <laughs> used in the last uh, election cycle. So ideas all over the map. Again, 51 of these. We'll see how many of them actually make it through, though. What process to make it through? How do they end up on the ballot? Just like any other bill, they have to be approved by the full House and Senate chambers. Um, but the part that they're skipping, the part that's important is most bills get approved by the House, get approved by the Senate, and then have to get signed by the governor. Right. There's no governor's signature involved in this uh, with, with these HCRs and SCRs. Okay, so it could be a very long list on our ballots next year, depending on what they decide to do in those two chambers. But is it a good idea for lawmakers, or like from their perspective, to let voters kind of decide on some of these big policy issues? Like, don't voters usually kind of default to no on ballot measures? That's true. That's true. The, the default is when you see a long list of these things just to check the no box or maybe <laughs> or maybe just skip it entirely mm -hmm. because that's a lot of research that you have to do to figure out what does this ballot measure do? What am I actually voting on? Um, but I, I think what you're going to see is Republicans reach for this tool out of necessity because their ideas are not going to get past this Democratic governor, Katie Hobbs. Um, and what's important to remember, too, is it's not just this year we're talking about. There's two years for for lawmakers to refer measures to the ballot in 2024. Wow. Anything passed in the 2024 legislative session would also go to the 2024 ballot. So we could have two years worth of HCRs and SCRs, concurrent resolutions, stacked up along with, you know, a vote for presidential nominees in 2024. <laughs> it was a long ballot last time. I go, okay, so we'll, we'll watch for what happens there. But this also sort of changes the the fundamental way that this happens, right? Like, and, and brings money into it, I'm guessing, because then you have to run a campaign to convince voters to vote for your proposal. <laughs> for sure, for sure. A, a successful ballot measure, it's not just, uh, for citizen initiatives, it's not just gathering signatures. Uh, it's, it's actually convincing voters, getting advertising out there, getting speakers out there getting, um, you know, polling out there to figure out how people feel about this ballot measure. The same goes for these resolutions that get referred to the ballot by the legislature. Not all of them are going to have the financial backing that's necessary to get them across the finish line. Some are going to hope that maybe the idea is simple enough that it would just resonate with voters. Mm. But in a lot of cases, it, it does take uh, it does take wealth. It does take a lot of money. And 
We'll have to wait and see how much money is is available to fly around, especially in a year when uh, presidents are going to be or potential presidents, excuse me, are going to be on the ticket. A lot of money is going to be funneled to the presidential race. How much is going to be left for those ballot measures? And how much attention? (laughs) (laughs) All right. KJZZ's political editor, Ben Giles, joining us. Ben, thanks as always. Thanks, Lauren. Well, spring has sprung here in Arizona and rather quickly at that. Just a week after parts of the state saw up to two feet of snowfall, temperatures are quickly rising with the weekend set to creep into the 80s for the first time this year. Warm temperatures also mean Valley residents will be thinking about air quality when they venture outside, or maybe they should. Joining me with a preview of what our air quality might look like in the coming weeks is Matt Pace, meteorologist at the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality. Good morning, Matt. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. So I want to start with the current air quality outside, because especially this week as it started to warm up, it it looks pretty bad as we look at the skyline out there. Is it is it bad? Yeah. So what happens during this time of year is in between these storm systems, we have very stagnant conditions, which means light winds. And that allows PM10, which is dust and PM2.5, which is smoke to build up in the valley. And that's when you see that brown cloud sitting out there. But Mm -hmm. values have not been exceeding the federal health standard. They've actually been good to moderate. So that's at least good news. But as we head through the next couple months, that's when we're going to start to see ozone creep up. And of course, ozone's invisible. So you're not going to see that. So it's really important to pay attention to that air quality forecast. Right, right. And that comes in, you know, my weather app on my phone, right? We want to watch for that. Why? Like, why is this important for people to pay attention to? Yeah, that's a really good question. And during the winter months, it is that dust, the smoke that you can see. But as we stretch into summer, uh, it's ozone. And again, you can't see it. And why it's important is you can really do your part to reduce ozone as well. So what ozone needs is a lot of sunlight. Here in the valley, it's called the valley of the sun very few clouds, a lot of sun. And that combines with VOCs and NOx things that come out of your tailpipe, things that like paint smells, chemical cleaners, and it combines together to form that ozone. So on those days when we're forecasting high ozone, you can do your part by reducing the amount of emissions that you produce to hope bring those numbers down. But there's a lot of natural things that occur as well. Wildfires can occur Mm -hmm. um, that produce ozone. We can also look at the green up with all this rain that we've had, a big green up, meaning all those weeds you see out there, even the wildflowers, they can produce VOCs that can result in elevated levels of ozone. So Mm. ozone is extremely complex pattern. That's really interesting. So it sounds like as the temperatures get hotter, we need to think about air quality a little bit more. Um, Are we expecting it to get particularly bad this year or this spring? So that's a really good question. Some of the things we look at is like the the green up, how much rain we had. So we could potentially maybe see a little bit early start to the ozone season. But the good news is we actually had our first moderate ozone day yesterday, which obviously is not the greatest news, Hmm. but it's way behind when we normally see it on February 19th. So we're holding it off a little bit. But if we do start to dry out, especially when we look at our wildfire season, if it gets active down in the southeast corner of the state, some of that smoke could move in, increase your amount of ozone precursors and increase ozone. And then also the monsoon itself, when Mm. we have a very big snowpack, like we're seeing right now, typically the monsoon can be a little bit delayed. So that'll mean potentially a hotter start to the summer, a lot more high pressure, a lot calmer winds that could result in more elevated levels of ozone as we head into May and June. So a lot of complex features to think about. Hmm. So you mentioned the the snowpack, right? Like we got all of the snow, like literally a week ago, and now it's up to 80 degrees. It just changed really fast. Are we going to get too much snow melting too fast. What do we do with all this water? 
And certainly when you have a lot of the snow, it's going to melt as we head into the summer months. Now, it does a lot of good things for our reservoirs. Of yeah. course, as that snow melts, it begins to fill up the reservoirs. In fact, uh, right now, the SRP reservoirs on the Salt de Verde are 87% full. Last year at the same time, they were 72% full with Roosevelt Lake at 86% full. So we're doing really well yeah. when it comes to that. But of course, there's things to watch out for. If you're driving around or hiking in the high country, just watch out for streams are probably going to be running uh, more than they normally do because of all the snow melt. And then just like we saw this past week, uh, they can release water from Granite Reef Dam as those lakes fill up. And that's when you could see those low water crossings along the Salt River here in the valley begin to fill up and flow. So uh, it's a good thing. But of course, just be cautious as well as you're traveling around Arizona watching for those streams. Okay. So I want to ask you lastly, Matt, about, you know, kind of what you do there, like forecasting, right? Like we expected from forecasters a really dry winter because of, you know, La Nina and, and I guess patterns that are predicted, but we got a really wet one. Things did not turn out to match the forecast. Can we forecast what's happening in this spring and summer? What to expect? That's always a big question. And of course, <laughs> it's going to be dry in May and June, and then we're going to get some storms. But you can look at the patterns in El Nino, La Nina. Uh, a lot of people just look at that, you know, and you think, oh, it's El Nino. It's going to be wet. It's La Nina. It's going to be dry. But there's a lot more that happens. There's a lot more of what we call teleconnections that happen, like the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the NAO. A lot of different things come into play. But the big thing to look at, I think, here coming into summer is that snowpack. Last year, we didn't see any snowpack. We saw the monsoon set up really, really quickly. We had a very wet monsoon. So it's all going to depend, I think, personally on that snowpack. But, you know, there's still going to be those places that they're going to see that inch of rain in your neighbor. It's probably going to see absolutely none when we talk about monsoon. So an exciting pattern coming up. So we can't answer the question necessarily of, of, of what's going to happen in the rain version. But what about the heat? Because this is what we all started dreading probably a couple months ago, if you're like me in Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. And of course, this is the first 80 degree day coming up, which a uh, good news there as well, that we're actually uh, looking at that being well past the average. The really? average first okay. 80 degree day is February 3rd. Huh. So enjoy this time. But it is going to get hot, no doubt about it. We average a number of 100 degree, 110 degree days, and the average for that's May 2nd. So we still have a little bit of time to wait. So enjoy the 80s while they last because <laughs> we know for sure 100% it's going to get hot. We'll say that right now. It's going to get hot 100%. All right, we'll leave it at that. That is Matt Pace, meteorologist for the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality joining us. Matt, thank you so much as always for coming on. We appreciate it. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, the power that books have on our brains. Reading itself is a very powerful exercise of the brain because you have to transform words on a page into some sort of mental image that you create in your head and then you imagine that. It's a lot more work to do that than consuming something passively on the screen. But first, two Americans are dead this week after they were kidnapped shortly after crossing the border into Matamoros, Mexico. Two others were traveling with them, and they were found alive in a wooden shed outside the city after an exhaustive search by Mexican officials. It appears the group of tourists was caught in the middle of cartel violence. They were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
The tragedy has taken over news headlines from the region and sparked outrage in the U.S. But cartel violence and kidnappings are not uncommon in Mexico. And each time a tragic event makes news like this, it has a chilling effect on the vast cross-border tourism industry that stretches across the border. Here in Arizona, Alex LaPierre is the co-founder of Borderlandia, a tour company and binational organization committed to building public understanding of the borderlands. He and his wife, who is from Sonora, started the company together to promote understanding the region. And he told me he was running a tour there when he heard the news. I was in Banamichi, uh, Sonora, which is in central Sonora, uh, along the Rio Sonora Valley, a very beautiful part, extremely beautiful part of the state. Um, and uh, it was the news in the morning uh, at breakfast when I was meeting uh, with the students uh, from the Catholic high school um, and, the, and the teachers as well uh, that were chaperoning them. Um, so you teacher, were leading uh, like a up. like a Catholic high school school group in Sonora at the time? Correct. Correct. Wow. Yeah, they were visiting on a cultural exchange um, to learn about the cultures of the borderlands. And so we wanted to provide the perspective of both the urban uh, border at Nogales and also the rural uh, border as well. OK. And I understand that's kind of what you do as a company. Like your goal is to sort of enhance these kind of cross-border understandings and, and experiences. Yeah, we really want people to come and see for themselves and uh, make up their own minds about uh, our neighbor, Mexico, um, and really the good people um, that are just a stone's throw away from us residents um, here in, in southern Arizona. So tell me a little bit about your reaction to this news. I mean, this kind of event is, I'm sure, rare, but also awful. Yeah, it's very tragic, um, particularly because, um, you know, post 9-11, um, the Mexican border communities really orientated themselves around medical tourism. Um, and from what I uh, read into this um, tragic case, that was uh, the purpose of crossing uh, the border of the yeah. four Americans uh, was to uh, undergo some sort of procedure. And so, um, you know, Nogales here is particularly known for its dental tourism. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, it is curious as to whether, you know, how much that will be impacted um, by this news. So when there are big kind of big newsmaking incidents like this, when Americans are killed, when they're kind of caught in the violence that we hear about a lot in Mexico, I mean, do you think it has a chilling effect on the kind of tourism work that you do? Um, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, you know, the further away you are from the border, um, uh, the bigger the myth of the border is. Mm. Uh, and so, you know, we're really fortunate as pe people that live here in the borderlands because we have the opportunities to go over and meet with the people and see what, what the reality is and experience it. Um, but unfortunately for people that may live in Minnesota, you know, um, the news media is really the only filter that they can get about Mexico um, that they see maybe on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and so it makes it sound like it's it's kind of in, in epic proportions um, when, you know, in our country, uh, violence like this is a, is a daily hap happenstance. Hmm. So I, I imagine that's part of the work that you do when you're leading like a school group from, you said, Kansas City, right? Like, do you get a lot of concerns and questions about safety? Uh, yes, certainly. Um, and I think it's natural for people that, you know, over the last 20 years in the, in the news media, it seems like overwhelmingly um, uh, the stories from Mexico have been focusing on the negative stories, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is, is just it makes sense um, that they're, you know, if it leads, it leads. But uh, I'm really interested in sharing with um, both residents here of the borderlands and visitors, you know, the 98 percent good news about the borderlands and really the good people, the marvelous people. Um, 
that you'll just be delighted to um, see their their hospitality and their generosity. Um, that's the Mexico I want to share with people. How do you approach security on your tours? Like, what do you tell tourists in terms of how to how you're going to keep them safer or what you can and can't guarantee? Yeah, well, over the years, I've worked in the nonprofit field in uh, Ambos Nogales, and I've had uh, been fortunate to have a good relationship with uh, with uh, the consulate and, and their staff. Um, and they've advised uh, always with our guests that we bring over to Nogales, you know, to enroll in the STEP program, which is a program, uh, an app that they can uh, download uh, and be alerted um, for the, you know, the, the latest news um, and, and kind of updates on security in, in Mexico. But also, um, I rely on the local people, the contacts uh, more so um, in the in the places that we go and visit. Um, you know, the friendships, and now even family members that I know um, down in places like Hermosillo and the Rio Sonora um, to get their take on what the um, the security situation is um, mm. for for future visits. What do you say to to people you know who say? I can't go to that country. It's it's completely unsafe. I mean, you can see the State Department travel warnings. You can read the headlines. You can see the stats about about murder rates in Mexico, right? Yeah. Well, um, you know, what, and really enlightening thing for me was to, um, you know, sometimes if you can check the the State Department warnings for uh, other countries like the UK um, or France hmm. um, and see their travel warnings for um, particular areas in our country. Um, and reading those would cause uh, some hesitation uh, for visiting some of the big urban areas uh, in my country um, as well, uh, the United States. Um, and so I think it's a really a, a perspective thing. Um, you know, there's um, sometimes we forget, you know, the big expat population that there is in Mexico, Americans that are living there, you know, uh, 365 days of the year. Yeah. Um, I don't think this this news from the other ends of the borderlands is going to affect whether uh, they continue to live their lives down in Mexico. Do you change any of your plans going forward when events like this happen? Do you take more safety precautions or avoid certain areas, for example? Uh, absolutely. You know, uh, make perhaps make more calls um, from local contacts, double check um, the State Department and, and the STEP program definitely is, you know, it's, it's a kind of a wake up call to always kind of just be always, you know, alert uh, as anyone would in any big city. But there are many Mexicos regionally, um, but also um, kind of uh, in the urban and the rural sense. And so th those are two distinct worlds, too. And I want to make that point out to the public. Mm. All right. We'll leave it there. That is Alex LaPierre, the co-founder of Borderlandia, a tour company in the Sonora region. Alex, thank you so much for coming on and, and for your perspective on this. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Eviction rates are going back up in Maricopa County. Data from Eviction Lab show filings in Phoenix in January were 23% higher than average. That amounted to more than 7,000 evictions. The numbers are higher than during the pandemic when there was a moratorium on evictions and are approaching levels not seen since 2008 at the time of the Great Recession. My co-host Mark Brody talked about why that is and what could be done about it with Maxine Becker, an attorney focusing on housing policy at Wildfire. That's a statewide anti-poverty nonprofit. And they started with what she's seeing in terms of evictions and if the data from Maricopa County mesh with what she's seeing on the ground. Yes, definitely. Uh, we are seeing just an in incredible increase in the number of evictions, um, you know, in that that's those situations are really compounded by our lack of affordable housing supply 
increasing rents, um, increasing population, and the fact that rental assistance is slowly starting to go away. And I also think that we have an eviction program, an eviction court that is just focused on evictions. We haven't developed other policies and programs that really focus on housing stability that will help people avoid eviction specifically and help keep them in their homes. Do those tend to be programs run by the state? Are they municipal programs? Are they like nonprofit type programs, something that that a group like yours might run? Well, I think the most effective ones really are a collaboration of courts, of legal aid, and of social service agencies. Um, Those programs are really happening all throughout the country Um, since the pandemic. 36 states and 180 jurisdictions have stood up those programs. Um, And with the exception of a program in Pima County, um, we really haven't invested in an alternative to eviction here in Arizona. And so without an an alternative for landlords to use, for tenants to utilize, um, eviction really becomes the solution when someone finds themselves to be housing instable. So in your mind, what would a successful program to try to prevent somebody from being evicted look like? The most successful programs, and and what's helpful now is that we really have data from around the country that shows the efficacy of these programs. Um, The best programs are when you can um, allow early access when a tenant knows that they're having a problem, that maybe they can't make rent. Uh, They're not currently late, but they know it's not going to happen for them in the next month. They can reach out at that point and try to access some kind of an early intervention mediation program to start working with their landlord, accessing social services, accessing rental assistance, accessing legal assistance to understand what they can do to try to prevent an eviction. Um, The earlier we can work with people before it gets into um, an actual service of an eviction lawsuit, the better outcomes there are. Um, And we just don't have that here in Arizona. Well, it sounds like just like in medicine, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Absolutely. I just think that there's a lot of opportunity here in Arizona to try something else. And we just need to keep working at developing the political will, the judicial will to try something different than than the eviction system that is really very good at what it does, which is evicting people. Um, But we need to work on keeping people housed. In your mind, is it a lack of will from various entities that is preventing this sort of thing from happening? I I don't know that it's a lack of, I think it's, I think we need to, I think that will is, is coming. I think that, you know, we had a huge shock in 2008, a big, you know, economic shock to the system where we saw these numbers. That's the last time we can go back and see those, these same numbers in that situation. And now we're seeing it again in, in the wake of the pandemic and, what we're seeing with housing supply. And those two things are really related. And I think now we really are seeing that there are just these real systemic issues with our housing stock, with affordability, that they have to be addressed in a better way. And I think at this point, I'm hoping that it really is undeniable that we we need to move in that direction. So when the eviction moratorium ended uh, that was put in place uh, during the pandemic, there were a lot of predictions that there would be just this giant wave of, of residents who were being evicted. 
it kind of sounds like, at least in, in Arizona or at least in Maricopa County, that hasn't really happened, that it's been rising for sure, but not like not this giant wave of people getting evicted all at once. Well, I think we're starting to see that wave happen now. You know, this is these are numbers that go back again to 2008, 7,000 you know, families um, being served with evictions are, is an incredible number. And so I think you know, we sort of saw several things. I think at the end of the pandemic, we still had a tremendous amount of rental assistance that was being distributed. Mm-hmm. And so that was helping helping keep people housed. I think landlords were also you know, continuing to accept that rental assistance, um, being patient and trying to wait for that rental assistance to come through. Um, and as that has ended, now we're seeing that is starting to to the dam has now broken and, um, and and that's being compounded with a housing market where we're seeing increased prices. And so people that are on maybe month to month leases, those leases are starting to go that that amount is going up and people can't afford the new amount. So we're seeing sort of a, a really it's maybe not a tsunami, but it's now a perfect storm. So do you have reason to believe that the numbers will not continue to keep going up? I mean, do, do you expect them to keep going up at this point? I think I expect them to at least stay the same. I don't know that we see a reason for them to come down. Um, Prices are still high. Eviction assistance is running out and we don't have affordable housing for people to go to. So I think for the foreseeable future, I would imagine we're going to be in a a time where we're going to be seeing a lot of evictions happening. And I don't know that we have immediate solutions to that problem. Um, unfortunately, I think, you know, we didn't start in 2008. We had that housing slowdown. We weren't building new housing. And so we don't have that in the pipeline yet. It's, hopefully it will be coming, but we just don't have things immediately for the solution because we just didn't invest in it back when we saw this problem spike in 2008. Well, so given, as you say, that this has been an issue that's kind of been brewing, you know, since 2007, 2008, I wonder if in some ways what we're seeing now, and given that the state hasn't really done much to try to address it, I wonder if in some ways what we're seeing now was almost inevitable. Well, I think given that there really wasn't a lot of investment in alternatives throughout this time period, I suppose it does feel a bit inevitable at this point. I mean, I don't know that anyone could have foreseen a pandemic or you know all of that, but I think just if you were someone looking at the ability, you know, what was going on with our affordable housing stock. We can track you know, where the housing growth has been, where the price points are. And as you see that shrinkage of the affordable housing, at some point, where are those people going to live that can't afford median rent, can't afford market rent, um, need to live in places that are, you know, that, that will be something that they can afford if they are making minimum wage or just above. And that's something that you know we need to our cities, our towns, our state, you know, needs to keep an eye on so that we know that we have housing for everybody. Everybody. All right. That is Maxine Becker, an attorney specializing in housing policy at Wildfire. Maxine, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. 
There are a couple of GOP-sponsored bills making their way through the state legislature now that, on their face, aim to protect mothers and children. But Democrats say they are surreptitious ways to add fetal personhood into Arizona law. The idea of fetal personhood is something of the next frontier in the post-Roe abortion landscape, giving rights to unborn fetuses in new ways, like providing a child tax credit to a parent the year before a child is born, or allowing pregnant women to drive in the HOV lane. But abortion rights advocates say they're a threat to the rights of all pregnant people. I spoke more about what's happening here at the state capitol with the Arizona Mirror's Caitlin Seavers. So House Bill 2502 would allow a parent to receive child support back to the date of a positive pregnancy test. House Bill 2501 would provide a child tax credit to parents during the year before a child is born. And then House Bill 2427 would lower the barrier to file aggravated assault charges against someone who knowingly attacks a pregnant person. Hmm. So all of these in the big picture are seemingly looking at sort of specific things, protecting mothers and children is what Representative Matt Grass, who put these forward, said, right? Yes. Yeah. Who's behind them, though? So for at least one of the bills, Gress said that he was working with the Center for Arizona Policy, which is an evangelical Christian organization that wants to eliminate abortion. Okay, so Democrats on the other side of this are saying that while these things might seem like, you know, nice ideas to protect mothers and children or pregnant people in general, Democrats are also saying it's sort of a surreptitious way to get at this idea of fetal personhood and codify it. Can you tell us a little bit about why? So there have been bills at the national level that have kind of done the same thing as Gress's bill. Um, They haven't been passed, obviously. But the people who proposed those bills were going to codify fetal personhood. Hmm. And this is sort of getting around a direct codification of fetal personhood, which the Arizona legislature did not too long ago, right, but is sort of stuck in the courts? Yes, that bill did pass, but then it was put on hold um, as it makes its way through the courts. Yeah. So what does Gress say to that? Like, does he admit that this is getting at this idea of fetal personhood at all? Absolutely not. Um, I asked him directly about that, and he said no. Hmm. So what would this do then? If these laws are on the books in Arizona or around the country, as you say, there are efforts like this to do this, how does that affect this idea of abortion rights? So it's possible that lawyers could use these laws if they pass to say, well, look, Arizona already says that through you know, laws that have already been passed, that fetuses have the same rights as any other person. Tell us a little bit about the debate that went on here, because there were some really interesting points that were brought up by Democrats and Republicans as they sort of hashed this out. So Democratic Representative uh, Annalise Ortiz asked her colleagues to vote against the bill, urging them to consider the potential broader implications She said she was concerned about ingraining into law something that gives fetuses more rights than the person who is pregnant. Hmm. And then Republican Representative Alexander Culloden, who always has uh, some pithy things to say, said that he voted for the bill because, and I quote, I do not believe in beating pregnant women. Wow. 
So where does someone like like an organization like the Arizona Coalition to End Sexual and Domestic Violence stand on something like this? Right. Because this bill is directly addressing domestic violence issues, which, you know, can start or worsen, I think, sometimes when a woman says, you know, I'm pregnant. Yeah. And and that's absolutely true. Um, They actually came out against the bill. I want to also talk about what's already on the books here. If we're talking about this particular domestic violence bill, like are, are there enough I guess, could you argue there are enough kind of laws in place to protect people in domestic violence situations to begin with? That is exactly what some of the Democrats argued when they were talking about this bill. Um, They said, you know, there are already laws in place that protect pregnant women, and there are certain enhancements that you can add on specifically because the person is pregnant that would give more harsh sentences or possible sentences to Hmm. people who beat pregnant women. Okay, so we have a governor in place who is a pro-choice Democrat who will probably not sign any kind of legislation like this. But I want to lastly put this into broader context, right? Because this debate over fetal personhood and how to get it into law, whether it's, you know, the HOV lane thing or the domestic violence issue, is not one that's just happening here, right? Right. It's happening everywhere, obviously, um, after Roe v. Wade was shot down last summer. You know, Democrats are concerned about the potential future of abortion rights, and a lot of Republicans are looking at trying to get rid of the rights that are still existing today. It's something that people across the country are worried about, and um, I think there are bills similar to this that have been proposed um, in other states as well. All right. Caitlin Seaver is deputy editor for the Arizona Mirror, joining us to talk more about these bills. Caitlin, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me. Good morning. It's the show here on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. How much of who we are is real and how much is a story we make up in our brains? Greg Burns aims to help answer that question in his book, The Self-Delusion, the new neuroscience of how we invent and reinvent our identities. Burns, a psychology professor at Emory University, and his team had 20 people read the 2003 novel Pompeii, an historical fiction about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. In between sections of the book, the readers would come in for a brain scan to see if their brains had changed based on what they read. Burns spoke with my co-host Mark Brody about what he found, and they began by talking about what questions he was trying to answer here and why that was so important to him. Well, it's something that I've been wondering about for probably a decade. And so I've spent most of my career using brain imaging technologies, uh, first to study how people make decisions, and then later on how other animals make decisions. But we did a study about 10 years ago where we had people read a novel over a period of nine days, actually. And they would come in every day in between uh, reading these chapters. And what we were after was to see if we could measure the effect of consuming a novel on the brain. The reason we were interested in that is because everyone, I think, has had the experience that they've read something, probably when when they were younger, but at some point in their life, that it somehow changed their worldview and and really affected um, how they saw things. And so we set out to demonstrate that, yeah, you can actually measure that in the brain. And in what ways are our brains affected by by reading and maybe the content that we're reading? It's it's really interesting because um, the brain seems to incorporate information from 
all sorts of uh, sources. Um, and this basically breaks down into two sources. One is our own experiences. And then the other source is things that we hear from other people. And whether that's a told story verbally, or it's something you see on TV, or whether it's something you read, all of this gets incorporated into our so-called memory banks. And it's kind of mashed up. And so when we remember things, it's always a mix of our, our remembrances of our experiences kind of overlaid and contaminated by all these other things floating around our heads. And really it's, it's impossible to separate those out and who we think we are and what, what the book is actually about is how these two sources of information get merged into our sense of identity. Are we affected differently when we read something versus when we see it on TV or if, if, if somebody tells us verbally? Like, are our brains affected differently by reading it than, than consuming information in other ways? It seems very likely. So when we did the study a decade ago, we, we focused on reading um, for a couple of reasons. One is, is that I think that reading itself is a very powerful exercise of the brain because you if you think about it you have to transform words on a page into some sort of mental image that you create in your head and then you imagine that and that takes a lot of work it's a lot more work to do that than consuming something passively on the screen and so there's good reason to expect that that reading itself in, in many ways may be more lasting and kind of more impactful than something passive would it be your expectation that reading nonfiction, reading other things other than novels would have the same impact? You mentioned that that your subjects read a novel over time, but do you think that the brain imaging would have the same kind of impact if it were something else that they were reading than a novel? It, it's not clear. Um, and having just written a nonfiction book, I would like to you know, have the <laughs> illusion that it that it's impacting people's brains, but it may not. Um, you know, so nonfiction, for example, tends to be more informative um, than a novel, meaning that it's more about information transmission, whereas a novel is is about characters and plot. That said, good nonfiction also has narrative arcs to it. And so, you know, a good nonfiction book also tells a story. And in fact, that's what I try to do in mine. Right. Well, it really sounds like what you're saying is that imagination, I guess, is the key here, that you are taking words and in your brain sort of figuring out what they are saying to you and what it looks like to you and really sort of creating something in your head as opposed to, for example, seeing it on TV or something else, or even just, you know, reading a nonfiction book, and I'm sure yours would not fall into this category, but where, you know, somebody is just telling you a bunch of facts and there's not a lot left to the imagination. Yeah, I think, you know, it depends on, on on how much it requires you to incorporate that information and then imagine something with it. And the point is, is that all of these sources of information, whether it's reading or whether it's uh, consuming on TV or the screen, all of it gets into our brains. And when we think about things and when we try to make sense of the world, it's a combination of those external sources along with our own experiences. And when, when we try to make sense of things, and, and by make sense of things, I mean tell stories about the way the world works or who we are, we don't kind of have a, a good provenance of where all these sources come from. It's just in our heads and you know we don't care that it's something that happened to, to 
ourselves versus you know someone else and we saw that it's just in there and that it's kind of a soup that gets jumbled up and spit out again in terms of our own storytelling so is it more about recall than imagination in some senses you can't separate the two recall of memory involves imagination and and we know a lot about how memory works in the brain and it essentially repurposes the systems that experienced something by reactivating them so in that sense a memory is a reimagination of something but of course it's not perfect and every time we do it it gets corrupted in some way by whatever the context is that we're remembering things and so my example you know is thanksgiving dinners you know where families get together and and we reminisce about things that might have happened 20 or 30 or 40 years ago and at this point in time is well nobody could really say what really happened it's just lore at this point and that's kind of how memory works so you mentioned that this was a question that you'd been thinking about for many many years i'm curious now that you have this data this information what would you like to do with it so once you realize what's happening in your brain in terms of how we incorporate different sources of information and how we use that to create a sense of self, you realize how much of it is actually a fiction that we tell ourselves. It's just a story. You know, who you think you are is the story that you tell yourself and you tell other people about what happened to you and how you got where you are. But it is just a story that connects what may be random events in your life that you had no control over. And once you realize that, you have the power to tell whatever story you want. And that really is, I think, kind of the main message of, of the book is that the self is itself an illusion or a delusion in the most extreme. That's just the story that, that we tell ourselves about how we got where we are and where we think we're going. And you can tell any story you want. That seems both in some ways empowering and also a little bit terrifying. It is both. Indeed, it is. Uh, it's empowering if you are of the mind that you want to change your trajectory. Uh, and it's a bit terrifying in the sense that if you if you actually believe this, then you have choices. And of course, you know, when you're faced with choices, that can be quite overwhelming. All right. That is Greg Burns, professor of psychology at Emory University in Atlanta. His book is called The Self-Delusion, The New Neuroscience of How We Invent and Reinvent Our Identities. Greg, nice to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. that'll do it for this Thursday edition of the show. Be sure to join us again tomorrow morning at 9 when we'll of course have our Friday newscap and all of the biggest political stories of the week. And remember you can always connect with us on social media. The show is now on Instagram at KJZZ the show and you can find me on Twitter at Lauren Gilger and Mark Brody at Mark W. Brody. For Mark Brody, I'm Lauren Gilger. Thanks for joining us. That's it for this episode of The Show Podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.